The more diverse your team with common values and common culture, not much higher the probability of success. And that is undeniable in every study you see everywhere. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Idi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, we just want to welcome you to the Kelly family and remind you that we exist for you. So if you're a leader who's struggling with just the hardships of just the reality of, of running an organization, whether you're wanting to find new trends and get a hold of some of our faculty to see you know, where industries are moving, or you just know of a great individual who would make an awesome guest for our show, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at IEPUI.edu. Well, there's no question 2020 has been a wild ride, almost like a movie script if this if it were to be made into a Hollywood film. And it's it's just something I think that's going to really start to prove and, and, and show the resilience of, of this country, resilience of this world. And I think in this time, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, growth. I think we're going to see a lot of organizations develop and take hardships and take problems and really leverage that to find solutions to how do we make a better future. And, and a lot of that's going to come through the creative mind of entrepreneurship. And so today we are unbelievably humbled and honored uh, to be joined by the CEO and founder of JC2 Ventures, who's also an alum of the Kelly School of Business, John Chambers. John, thank you so much and welcome back to the podcast. Matt, I'm looking forward to it today. And it is a exciting and yet challenging time we find ourselves in. So I want to start off from from the get go. You know, for those that may not know, uh, you know, you were the CEO of Cisco Networks, an incredible technology organization for over twenty five years. You know, and you've made the transition now into uh, the startup world, which which is an interesting transition when you go from from a, an established organization who's got such a great footprint. Um, you know, it's known throughout the world. Um, you know, and you could have gone to another organization that's well established, but you know, you decided to jump into the volatile startup world. So I'm just curious as to why that transition was made for you. Well, it, it, it's a great question. And Matt, it, it sounds like a question you, your audience would think I've heard many times before. I have not. And uh, uh, it's one that really makes me think, but one that's pretty easy for me to answer. Uh, my time at Cisco was a tremendous rush. Uh, and I think many people would say we did a lot of things that rewrote the business books about entrepreneurism, innovation, uh, scaling, benefit of economic return to your shareholders and yet benefit to society, uh, and took an organization from 400 people and 70 million in sales to 48 billion and uh, 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 75,000 people. And we did win every corporate social responsibility award imaginable. But it's like anything in building a family, et cetera, you wanna turn that family over to the next generation to take it to the next level. And my heart is really around innovation and speed of movement and uh, uh, making a difference one more time. I would argue we did a pretty good job at that at Cisco, changing the way the world works, lives, learns, and plays. And when I originally said that, everybody said, no, John, you're, you're a techie company that has uh, you know, the tech departments at Indiana, talking to the tech departments at Stanford, talking to the tech departments at Ohio State, et cetera. 
how's it going to change the world? And the internet clearly did. Uh, my goal at this stage of my life is to do three things. Uh, first, my family is the most important thing in my life. But the three goals I have from a, uh, a personal perspective and business perspective is I really want to make a difference one more time. Uh, secondly, I'm going to live life to its fullest. And third, I'm going to give back. And what I'm doing now allows me to do all three. Uh, I believe the next challenge for this country uh, and for the world is the large companies, because of digitization, will not create new jobs. Uh, they will actually decrease jobs in total. So it says all job creation has to occur from startups and small companies getting dramatically bigger. And we've got to do that in a way. It isn't just Silicon Valley, Austin, Texas, New York. It's got to be including all of the states throughout the Midwest and the Southeast, uh, of which obviously I'm very passionate about Indiana and my home, West Virginia, on it. And then I'm trying to do that in France with President Macron and with Prime Minister Modi in India as their ambassadors uh, for startups and digitization. What caused me to change is I love to move rapidly. And I, uh, it's a... Adi, you will appreciate this. It's a strength and a weakness. I try to do too many things. And, and not only do I get encouraged by that, I try to do even more, but just put a structure behind it. So to ability to change the world by getting entrepreneurship into established companies and entrepreneurship into startups at a much faster pace and to be the champion of that, perhaps, and teaching how to do it. This is why I love Indiana and Adi, what you do every day teaching your students is so important. Uh, that is fun for me. And, and when you can maybe change the world and people said you can't, you actually can. Uh, and you can make a difference. And we can maybe talk later at just using West Virginia as an example, what they've done in, in only three years of uh, entrepreneurship and changing education and, and dreaming, which they, they, we weren't doing before. Uh, on it. So I'm trying to change that. I think the number of startups need to go up in the U.S. by 3x. They've got to be inclusive across the whole country. We need a national policy for startups and innovation. We've got to realize we are no longer the startup nation. We're getting our tails kicked by the Europeans and the countries out of Asia. And we're doing it in a way if we don't correct, we're going to have huge income uh, divides within the country, uh, both by geography, uh, by people of color, uh, by uh, age and by gender. And uh, I think we can fix that. So to do that is fun. And it's like having kids. You know, and I, I get to have a huge circle of, of family, a tighter circle of family than I have 18 that I'm heavily invested in. And I've already talked to, interestingly enough, it's only 9.15 in the morning here at West Coast time. I've already been communicating and working together with five of those companies already today. So I love what I do. Uh, hopefully, it's going to help change the world one more time. It is a rush to do it. I take my teams up to Alaska fishing uh, each year and helicopters and fly into remote locations with the grizzly bears and build culture and then giving back to make a difference. So it uh, it's, yeah, as you can tell, my pupils dilate when I talk about it. I couldn't be more excited about what I'm doing. And, and I hope that I do a good job for society one more time. John, going, going back to the, the comment that you made uh, about the United States in contrast to other countries like Israel, Jordan, France, and India, you state that the United States is one of the few countries in the developed world that lacks a national digital strategy, uh, nor at this point in time are there any significant policy moves that would put digitization combined with becoming a startup nation on the radar in Washington. 
And, and you're really emphasizing that this is not from any specific political party, but you acknowledge that the scope of digital revolution um, needs to be, you know, public-private effort, investment, um, and indeed, you say that the the digital the digital future shouldn't be, uh, you know, a left-right issue or a Republican-Democratic issue. What will it take to get our country moving in terms of a national digital strategy? Well, I have tremendous confidence in the future of our country. And while at times we stumble and we do strong stumble, and I think it actually makes you stronger when you stumble and recover from it, uh, as my parents taught me, eventually we always get it right. And one of the dangers is you can take for granted the benefits you have in society. And then all of a sudden when they're no longer there, you say, what happened? And the answer is we kept doing the right thing too long. We felt entitled without using those words. We felt we could just continue to have the benefits of a strongest capitalistic system in the world and the benefits of getting that across all of our population. And then we realized we're not getting it at the level that we need. And uh, as you articulated properly, uh, Israel is always the first to move with innovation because they have to to survive of a nation of 7.5 people, a million people. Uh, on it. and uh, But then when you saw France move with a digitization policy and the startup policy, and you saw India, you realized one of the two most populous countries in the world and a country that was not known for business or entrepreneurism or inclusion suddenly leading, you've got to say, what are we waiting for? So I'm optimistic regardless of how the decisions end up in Washington that we will say to get this economy going again, it will not come back like it was before without doing things dramatically different, especially the inclusion. And that reaches across all areas, you know, and what you're doing at Indiana University. And I love the, the comment about the Kelly family. We're here, we exist for you. That's continuing education and the involvement, uh, not just for your MBA students and business students, but after you graduate. And I think the curriculum of colleges have to be turned upside down. Uh, and really focus on entrepreneurism, regardless if you're gonna be a doctor, a lawyer, uh, uh, a liberal arts or business or an economic person, you have to have that core. And then as a nation, we need to get back on our game, set audacious goals. Uh, we've got to become the number one startup nation again. We've got to have the transparency. We are not. We're not even close. Our startups are back where they were decades ago. And uh, other countries like France, their startups in the last five years are up 500%. And there is no entitlement for us. And we're going to get challenged in a big way from China uh, in terms of leadership on technology. And every company becomes a technology company. So we do need these policies. I'm obviously passionate about it. And uh, I'd challenge the people listening to our, our podcast today, how might they play a role in making this happen? You know, it's interesting. I want to go back to something you said about the this concept of, you know, large corporations cannot be relied upon in the future for, for creating all the jobs. I mean, that's been a mentality where, uh, you know, you, you get that job at that big company and then you're pretty much set for life. You know, there's that perception. And, you, you know, you're saying that actually a lot of these jobs are going to come from the startup world, from, from the small yes. businesses. They're going to grow. And you also kind of grind that into or, or merge that into the idea that even if you are within some of these major organizations, the mentality of entrepreneurship needs to be embraced. Whether you are an entrepreneur and making that's how you make your money, 
or you're within a large corporation, you still need to embrace that mentality of, of entrepreneurship. So I would love for you, could you address, you know, what is that mentality? You know, what it defines that mentality of entrepreneurship? Because entrepreneurship can be such a broad term. Um, and so what are some of those characteristics that people are, are, are needing to embrace? So let me set the overall stage that you set up so well and then answer very specifically the question. Uh, if you watch in the large companies, and I was trained by a great graduate school, Indiana University, and a law degree from West Virginia, uh, undergraduate for a couple of years at Duke. Uh, but I was taught to do the same thing better each year by about 5%. And uh, that was very acceptable in industrial revolution war the world that we existed in when I graduated quite a few decades ago. In today's world, it is all about innovation. You disrupt or you're going to get disrupted. You have to deal with the world with the challenges that exist today that are occurring at a speed. And at the core of the foundation of all changes will be digitization technology, regardless of the industry. Within that, 40% or more, probably closer to 50, of the large companies in Indiana won't exist in a meaningful way in a decade. And when I first started saying that about the Fortune 500, people said no. Now my counterparts would actually say probably that's too conservative a number. And the headcount increases will not occur there. So the large companies have to innovate at a faster pace, and yet they are pretty practical that they are not able to attract the same level of talent that they were before. And the talent, both out of school and often movement within a given geography, uh, will occur into the startups and the new innovation capability. And uh, using just an example is you saw that the chief financial officer out of uh, General Motors just a couple months ago went to Stripe, a startup uh, out here on the West Coast. And the chief financial officer out of Ford, uh, who was prior Amazon, uh, Snap, uh, experience, et cetera, and a great CFO at Ford, he went to one of my startups only 250 people ASAP, artificial intelligence, customer experience in New York. What I'm preparing you for is the majority of graduates out of Indiana or out of uh, my home state, West Virginia, uh, uh, Stanford, MIT are now going into startups. And startups have a innovation mentality with their funders anticipating it's a 10-year bet. Large companies get measured this quarter this year and actually you can get penalized thinking five and 10 years out. So you're going to see large companies have to re-embrace entrepreneurism, but also work with startups in a way they haven't done before and a speed, and it's hard to do. And that's one of the major trends that I see is innovation in large companies coming from both internal, but also partnering with startups in a way they've not done before. In large part, because the startups are able to take risks and innovate at a faster pace, but they also attract some of the best talent. So what characteristics? You have to have an attitude of innovation. I'm a little bit biased on this. There is only one Steve Jobs. He just knew what to build. Uh, I go to my customers and ask, what do you want me to build? Who do you want me to buy? I'm thinking of this idea. What do you think? Should we do it or not? So I think uh, entrepreneurism really focuses in the end on the consumer, on the end customer. It focuses about speed of movement. It focuses about a new world where you've got to have technology as the foundation. And it's uncomfortable for most of us, regardless of age or training, to really understand how to use technology to change healthcare or education or government services 
or retail, et cetera, on it. And so the skills that are needed now are more entrepreneurial. And I think the programs need to be done both, both across business school, but the, all of the university uh, in terms of thinking about entrepreneurism for every category. Uh, the skills have to be about speed of movement and not doing the right thing too long. That gets you in as much trouble as taking risks too fast. It's about how do you combine technology and understand, you know, it might surprise you, I didn't really like technology. Uh, it was it was kind of, you know, of moderate interest to me. I love what technology could do to change business or government or our lives. And all of us have to understand how does that technology with new areas like uh, artificial intelligence and the internet of things and digitization and cloud moving to the edge, what impact it will have on everything from driverless cars uh, to changing retail models, et cetera. So the skills needed are a, a mix that we haven't seen before. Uh, and it's with the speed needed, both for existing Retraining. It's why I like the Kelly family concept, uh, but it's also about how to the universities, which we still lead in in the world, have the best, but not by the same delta we used to have in the world, have to recreate themselves. And we do need national programs to do this well, in my opinion. I would have never said that as a businessman and a moderate Republican just a short time ago, uh, but we do. And uh, government and business, education, society, uh, inclusion. We have to work together in a way we've never done before, regardless of political party, regardless of geography, color, skin, religion, gender, etc. You know, uh, John, I want to follow up on that last point. Um, it, you referred also to diversity in another uh, answer to a question, and you referred to attracting and developing talent. In your book, there's a, there's a quote in your book I like. You said, any country that makes it hard for women, minorities, immigrants, retirees, the unemployed, or other group to access the tools, talents, and support needed to create startups is making a mistake. And I, I find it fascinating that you say if you don't tap the talent that a country has to offer, you risk huge wave of social unrest. Can you share an example either of a country or a company that has been successful in harnessing the talents of women or minorities or immigrants or, or even the unemployed in order to spur that innovation? So let's use a country which I think all of us are familiar with, Israel. Uh, the late Shimon Perez was a friend for 17 years. It is truly the startup nation. And it was a startup nation that was completely inclusive. Uh, with Shimon, I would travel to Upper Nazareth, Lower Nazareth. I would talk to the Arab community with him, uh, the uh, uh, Jewish community, the Christian community. And he did it without fear. I mean, we were getting crushed by the mobs. If somebody wanted to take us out, it could have easily happened at any time. And then I would go over uh, into Palestine uh, at the full support of the Palestinian, the Jordanian, Jordanians, the uh, Israelis, and talk about a startup community there. Then I would go to a very remote part of Israel into the desert and talk with the nomad tribes and others, how the education has to change to make it inclusive. And if you've watched, there's one nation that's reinvented itself again and again, clearly Israel, and it's done it across the society and against all odds. Uh, I think we grasp that. Uh, then let's go to uh, uh, the general rules. I'm a, I'm a dreamer and I connect the dots and pattern recognition in part because I'm dyslexic. I have to go ABC. I don't think ABCDEF. I have to picture how this plays out, take a snapshot of my mind, then say, how do we get there? But diverse teams always out-execute teams that look alike. And that is undeniable in every study you see everywhere. 
So the more diverse your team with common values and common culture is important. The more diverse your teams, the much higher the probability of success. I did uh, one session uh, this morning uh, with uh, Raji Thomas, the CEO of Sprinkler. Uh, he is rewriting the customer experience using all forms of modern customer care, modern listening, research, et cetera, to really transform how companies interface uh, to startups. They're, they're, they're a $2.7 billion unicorn, uh, probably hopefully will go public in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, but we focus today on several topics, but we focus about diversity. And his team is about as diverse as you can get. And you look across it, you see huge diversity out of India and the tremendous strengths there. You see gender diversity with tremendous power and capability and uh, their chief uh, cultural lead HR person, Diane Adams, I've worked together at Cisco. She is an amazing champion of that. Uh, you see their sales lead out of Italy. Uh, you see the diversity of the Indian uh, diaspora in terms of the mix uh, to it. And uh, they uh, just got funded uh, almost 200 million incremental funding and 300 million secondary funding uh, in this area. Another one would be a company called Unifor, which interestingly enough was out of India and then came here to the U.S. I picked it out of the IITs in India. They, uh, they do things like I think we need to do in the U.S., much like Stanford has done, about incubators and accelerators. And the 12 leading IITs produce now about 100 startups a year each. Uh, at a whole different scale. And uh, the startup Unifor just happened to be the number three one out of this, uh, one of the IITs 10 years ago. And when I got involved with them, they were growing about 100% 100, uh, 100 year over year. Uh, their valuation was about 30 million uh, and uh, headed up by a brilliant uh, young uh, uh, founder uh, who at that time, <laughs> I have to remind myself, he was, he was just, turned 30 and his partner and uh, Amesh uh, uh, is the CEO and his partner Ravi co-founder uh, in this same age. And they've taken that company now from a company in India to a company that's moving to the U S their next round of financing too early to say for sure, but probably will be in the 500 million pre money to 700 million. They're growing like crazy and they are as diverse as it can be. Uh, three out of the last six hires at the senior executive level were females. Uh, the diversity in terms of the people's backgrounds, we, we had New Yorkers, which are truly from a different country. <laughs> uh, sorry to my New York friends. Uh, we had teams out of India and Singapore. Uh, we bring people that have backgrounds in startups and those that do not on it. Uh, and uh, uh, the lead uh, CRO is female, and uh, she is uh, she's she's tough to beat. Karen is just amazing on what she does. And you know what I'm saying? Here are the fastest growing, most profitable companies imaginable, uh, and they are all uh, diversity led. Maybe one last one to hit the point really home. ASAP out of New York City, headed up by a, a young person whose parents immigrated to this country, uh, and. Uh, uh, Gustavo is just amazing on what he's done there. And again, one of the hottest AI companies going, their last evaluation was well over $600 million post money. Uh, they have 55 PhDs of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, 
The War for Talent's amazing. They got the whole MIT graduating PhD class last year, uh, all four of them. Uh, and uh, they've got 55 out of 250 people. And so you, you do see a movement that is amazing for talent. But the point I'm making is the startups are getting the talents. And then these companies are working with big companies in partnerships to achieve their goals. So it's a playbook that will replicate, but it's one that, that you see unfolding right in front of us. You know, I want to kind of shift into the actual tangible principles of entrepreneurship. And I know in your book, Connecting the Dots, uh, for, for all of our listeners as well, I highly recommend checking it out, especially because, you know, you have one whole chapter dedicated to kind of a one-on-one question and answer session where you offer 13 questions that you get the most. They're the questions that you most commonly hear, no matter where you go around the world. Um, and, and, you know, so I highly, highly recommend that part, even just for that chapter alone. Um, but I have a question for you that didn't make the list, and I didn't know how common this was. Was uh, you know there's there's this concept of you know if, as as someone who has worked with organizations in college um, even out of college in various sizes and scopes and getting them started you know there's there's a lot of energy initially in that first time when you're getting on the ground everything's fresh every, you're hitting goals like crazy you know but as you hit some really major stretch goals there's this um, you know tendency for an organization to plateau, you know, they hit a huge, huge goal, you know, whether that be they get a building they finally wanted, maybe they grow their team to where they want, maybe they cross the million dollar in sales or a couple million dollar um, in sales. Uh, then all of a sudden, once they hit those big milestones, there's a tendency for the energy and the momentum to kind of plateau in an organization. So from, from your perspective, how can an organizational leader both anticipate that plateau when a major goal is about to be crossed and then leverage that momentum to continue on to set the next course uh, for, for a big goal? I think you've nailed the question, and and interestingly enough, it's almost like you've been following me around this week. Uh, I dealt with that in in two groups this week. Uh, One group that just won uh, the key deals that caused them to cross the chasm, if you're a Jeffrey Moore fan, move from uh, early innovators, interesting company where you survive, to uh, the early adopters in a big scale. And when they won those two big deals and they were just completing the funding, it was almost like an emotional letdown. The high was gone. And uh, uh, you have to anticipate that. And you, I've never understood exactly why, but after a company wins a big award or wins a big uh, customer relationship, there's almost a a letdown that occurs. Uh, The adrenaline is no longer pumping, et cetera. And this is where leaders have to anticipate this will occur, whether you're in a big company or a small company, whether it's an accomplishment in your division or your segment within a, a big company. And you've got to anticipate it, celebrate the success, and then while you're still on the high, move them to the next level. And uh, uh, many people believe that you never waste a crisis. And many people, myself included, if you haven't got a crisis going on, I may create one to stimulate the group and get them to move. <laughs> I guess one of the, the few benefits of what has occurred this last year is there are a lot of crises going on at the same time. And I think well-run organizations, regardless of size, will respond to those crises well. And I actually have never seen innovation move faster than we are right now. So you've got to anticipate it. You've got to evolve it. Uh, One of my startups, the CEO and the head of HR, uh, called me up about two weeks ago and said, John, we have an unusual request. You're on our board. You've talked to our leadership team many times. You know each one of them. But we have to 
get this team fired up again. We've just accomplished all the goals. We've uh, come through the downturn, the survival, position for the future. We just got huge fundraising just occurred. Our momentum and growth is, is really going. But we are zoomed out. We're a little bit exhausted. Uh, we haven't been able to spend time together, so little friction is beginning to spill over between groups. Uh, we've got to get us challenged again to go to a, to a battle and really focus about breaking away from our competitors. And we want you to come in and have just a unbelievable, candid, direct conversation, Q&A from all eight of our top leaders. And I'd never done one exactly like that, even though I speak to leadership groups all the time. And we went for an hour and a half, and it was amazing the give and take. But it was exactly the question you asked, Matt. It was exactly having gone through this, how do we get up and how do we go again? Because Raji Thomas, the leader of that company, he knew he needed to pull his whole team with him. And part of the time, he can be the lead dog in the dog sled and set the pace. Sometimes you want somebody who's been there, done it before, and watch the negatives if you don't change. If you make the mistake of letting it plateau, after plateau comes what? Decline. Downward. And then survival, and then probably out of business. So once you've seen that, you know what happens. And that's why the book is an example. Wang Laboratories, Dr. Ann Wang, most brilliant man I've ever met in my life. He was the leader of the computer, uh, many computer systems. But that whole industry in Boston 128 disappeared. Hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, Deck at over 100,000. Wang at 32,000. And it was because we plateaued and we failed to continue to innovate. And we took for granted that what we did, if we just did a little bit better, would ensure our future. So, John, as our final question, you know, you were just speaking about crises and and in the beginning of 2020, we all had big dreams. And, and then, of course, we hit the pandemic. And since that point, uh, we've all been worn down. And uh, you even just noted most people listening to this are probably weary Zoom warriors by now. So yes. how do we how do we look forward? How do we get entrepreneurial activities up to the three times level that you mentioned? And if you can offer just maybe one or two final action steps, action lessons that you want our listeners to walk away with. So I think we have to get back to dreaming big. Uh, you've got to have the courage to dream, to take risk, and then how do you implement those dreams and visions? And I think without realizing it, not only are we getting that adrenaline rush stopped, uh, we're plateauing. We need to get back to dreaming bigger and dreaming it three times the, the type of, of opportunity. With all my startups, and I'm also meeting with large companies as well, uh, we made our changes in January, February, March, and we were done by April. We'd realigned our resources if needed. We'd re readjusted to a plan B or C in our business models. Uh, we had realigned our customer relationships, re-level set our investors on what was done. And so we went through the survival. And now what we've done is pivoted. You can call it the Silicon Valley two-step or the Indiana uh, two-step. Uh, we've now pivoted to back to offense again and starting to grow. And this is where the leaders have to literally lead by example. And it will be hard. It will not be easy. And it won't be one event. And it won't be one emotional, let's go, we can make this happen. It's got to be outlining a vision and no longer about here's what we look like when we come out, but here's how we're going to get there. And breaking it down to the three, five, or seven major programs you've got to do to achieve those goals and getting the message back through if we don't disrupt, we're going to get disrupted. There is no entitlement. And then making it fun and celebrating the successes, which are hard to do in a virtual world. But all my companies now do 
Halloween sessions over Zoom uh, with their employees and with their kids. All of them will do different forms of you know, a, a celebration of a key success with a glass of champagne or meeting sessions or fun sessions. And so I think reinventing ourselves in this new virtual world, which is here to stay, it will never go back to the world we saw before. It will be a blended version of physical and virtual. But if I were to just say one thing, we've got to remember how to dream, especially our nation. We've got to dream as a nation toward one common goal, a dream that I believe America is destined to lead in innovation and in the true forms of democracy and the best education system in the world and inclusion of all the people in this country, regardless of geography, regardless of, of our religion, our color of our skin, our gender, et cetera. And I think we will lead again. It will be heavy lifting, however, but it starts with dreaming. Again, his book, Connecting the Dots, Lessons for Leadership in a Startup World. Be sure to get a copy. John Chambers, such an honor to have you here on the Kelly ROI Podcast. This has been another episode of the ROI Podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Idi Kesner. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.